Welcome to this week's edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Always great to have you with us and to talk college basketball with my man Chris Dorch from Blue Ribbon. Coming up just a little bit, Patrick Stevens, uh, one of the Blue Ribbon staff members and also writes for the Washington Post. Some really interesting uh, discussion and look at the uh, the brackets. Uh, he does his own bracket predictions. Uh, we're going to talk about the Mountain West a little bit as well. He's a, a, an expert on that conference. So looking forward to our visit with Patrick coming up here in just a few minutes. Mr. Dorch, what's going on? Oh, man, just sitting here thinking about buzzer beaters. Uh, The one you covered last night, I was thinking of you when that ball was in the air, just wondering what your call would be like. I I wasn't there. I watched it on television, and I wanted to rush to the Internet and and find your broadcast so I could just hear hear it. But, uh, of course, Vandy beat number six Tennessee at the buzzer, and it just got me to thinking about some of my all-time career best buzzer beaters and i've seen so many but but one sticks out but i was wondering does that stick out for you in in all the many games you've seen in your career yeah it's funny chris i was thinking about that driving home and tyron lawrence uh, hit that three out of the right corner i mean it just barely left his hand ahead of the red light and uh, yes. Van- vanderbilt won 66 65 it was a terrific game by the way uh a lot had to happen just to get to that point but uh ty had stepped up and made the big shot and uh, it was you know one of those wins that vanderbilt had really been needing one of those signature wins and they, they got it over tennessee uh, I, I was thinking that was the first time that i can remember calling a true buzzer beater win with the ball in the air as the horn sounded and uh, i've probably done between 700 and 800 college basketball games over the last 20 years or so i cannot remember doing one that was a win I've called some, especially with Belmont, that were close, like were scored with a second to play or something like that, hit a shot or got a layup. Uh, a couple of different OVC championship games were like that. And I've also done a loss or two. Uh, there's one that I remember uh, we played at Providence a few years back, and Kyron Cartwright for Providence hit, hit a three at the buzzer to win. But I can't remember ever calling one that the, the team I was working for won like Vanderbilt did last night. It was really special and fun. and It was kind of hard to see. It's a, it's a difficult vantage point uh, where you sit at Memorial yeah. Gym to begin with. And there are all kinds of security people and photographers and things that had come out and were kind of in front of us. And we're, we're sort of trying to get them to duck down or move out of the way so you have a clear view. But I felt like I was fortunate to be able to, to pick up that it was Lawrence pretty quickly after the shot left his hand. Like I could see the rest of the play. Robbins took the inbounds pass from Jordan Wright, then he had it off to Ezra Magnon, who drove the left lane line. Then when he got to the basket, he threw the pass to the corner, and and uh, Ty hit the shot. It's almost one of those things as an announcer. I'm almost more relieved that I didn't screw it up than I am happy that it, that it went well on the call. But uh, it was it was really fun. It was neat to be a part of that. You know, uh, that was a wild game. I don't think I've ever seen a team having the foul to get the ball back that had just one personal foul with, I don't know, less than two minutes to go. And the last few seconds were Vandy hurriedly trying to foul to put a Tennessee player at the line. And the one that they put at the line was probably the last one you wanted, Santiago Vescovi, who's money in the last four minutes from the line. And and he missed, and then all that happened, which, you know, uh, Vanderbilt's deserving of a win like that. Uh, they've they've had their ups and downs under Coach Stackhouse, but it it made me think of my all time favorite buzzer beater. I've I've seen. Oh, I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to say in in the thousands of games now in my career, but the one that stands out: 2008 March 14th SEC tournament, 
Alabama versus Mississippi State. Alabama's Mikhail Riley steps up, knocks down a three at the buzzer to send it into overtime. And unbeknownst to anybody else, an EF2 tornado was about to strike uh, the Georgia Dome. And had he not hit that shot, hundreds of people would have walked out the very door yeah. with a tornado hit. And I can tell you, it was creepy in there. You hear all those, uh, you know, you see newscasts where they talk to somebody who just got their house blown away and they'll say, yeah, it sounds just like a, a locomotive. It really does sound just yeah. like a mo- locomotive. And that place was shaking and it was throwing bolts and stuff at us. But yeah, Mikhail Riley, I did a story for the SEC's official tournament program a couple of years after that when it came back to Atlanta and he was playing overseas then and he was still he he just felt like he was almost faded from above that he made that shot because there's no question it saved lives yeah that was wild I was watching that game on TV I was not there in the building but I started to have friends that were there uh, texting me saying, man, this is a, a crazy scene. And talking like, just like you said, things falling from the roof, bolts yeah. and things, you know, off that, that, you know, roof that was made the way it was, you know, it turned out, out to be one of the wildest SEC tournaments ever because they moved it to Georgia Tech and Georgia ended up yes. winning. They won two games on the same day and uh, it was just a, a crazy Dennis scene. Dennis Felton, who complained about it the most at Georgia, who complained about how the SEC had to regroup the most, they end up up and winning the thing. Saved his job at the time because he was probably on the way out. And, he was on the way out. And, and they won sure. that tournament and, and got to the NCAA and, and probably bought him another year at that time. Yeah, it did. And, and I, I'll never forget, though, uh, there was only a specific amount of tickets allotted for each school. And somehow, as they always do, Kentucky fans <laughs> found their way to dominate. I'm sure a lot of money changed hands uh, during those couple of days. Yeah, and then there's the video of the fans who did not get in, and they were uh, not very happy with the uh, results no. uh, of their efforts to get tickets for those. They drove those, a long way to get there. Those games, nothing. Yeah, those games at Georgia Tech, that's right. A couple more quick buzzer beater stories, and I just thought of this one as we were speaking. Maybe the best basketball game that I've seen in person was in the 1998 uh, Kentucky State Boys High School Tournament at Rupp Arena. It was one of the semifinal games, and it was Scott County and Lexington Catholic. And I think Lexington Catholic was maybe ranked number one. They were favorites. And uh, it went to overtime. And Rick Jones, who ended up playing at Vanderbilt, he hit about a 30-footer at the buzzer to win that game. And it, before even that happened, that it would already been a fantastic game. But uh, that, that, that might have been the best one I've seen in person. Um, you know, there, there's lots of examples you can think of over the years. Of course, Christian Leighton yeah. comes to mind. Chris Jenkins, the, the shot that won the NCAA tournament for Villanova against North Carolina. And then on the other end of it, you know, you have those that you think of that didn't go so well. And I have kind of an embarrassing story from just a couple weeks ago. We do a Monday night show, and uh, we have Coach Jerry Stackhouse of Vanderbilt's men's program and Shay Ralph, who's the head coach of Vanderbilt's women's program. And the previous week, they had gone to Arkansas and lost on about a 35, 40-footer that was banked into the buzzer against the Razorbacks. And so I thought it might be fun to ask Jay about some of her uh, memorable buzzer-beater games that she had been a part of because I figured, you know, she played at UConn and she was assistant coach there for years and years. There's probably tons of stories about, you know, big glorious wins and all those things. And if you really think about it, most of UConn's wins are are beatdowns. There's a lot of uh, blowouts in there, so probably not very many buzzer-beaters. She brought up one from her playing career that was memorable, 
And then she said, yeah, and on the other end of it were the uh, the two in the final four, one against Mississippi State and the other against Notre Dame. And at that point, I was ready to just crawl under the table and, and uh, take the show <laughs> off the air because I was so embarrassed. They didn't want to relive those. <laughs> uh, she was a great sport, and, and I apologize when we were done, and she, she laughed about it and uh, uh, said it's all good. But, yeah, sometimes you got to think before you uh, ask questions off the cuff, and I, I wish I'd put a little more thought into that one. Uh, let's talk about what else is going on. Uh, Joe Lenardi's Bracketology, the last four buys are West Virginia, Southern Cal, Kentucky, and Arkansas, the last four in, and these would be teams that would go to Dayton to play, Boise State, Oklahoma State, Nevada, and Memphis. Uh, the first four out, Texas A&M and Florida from the SEC, Seton Hall and Oregon. Uh, his top four seeds, uh, Purdue certainly number one, the others Alabama, Arizona, and Houston. Big 10 and Big 12 have eight teams each, the ACC with seven, the SEC with a half dozen, the Big East with five, and uh, all this is subject to change. That's just where this stands as we speak. People get so bent out of shape about this stuff, but it's, it's Joe Lenardi's view of it uh, at this right. particular moment in time, and it's all highly subject to change. It is, and speaking of Kentucky, it's funny. They were sort of on a roll after struggling early in conference play, and then they just got smacked by Arkansas at home, and now people are going crazy, and they're talking about the quote-unquote Oscar Shebway problem uh, of course, he was consensus player of the year last year, double-double guy, had a 35 or 34-21 and 21 game not that long ago. But he, he only had 7-7 seven seven against Arkansas. But the damning quote was, Devo Davis said from, from Arkansas, the Arkansas guard, he said that they wanted a pick and roll. We knew their coverages weren't good. Just knowing that Oscar wasn't up to par on the pick and roll we knew we wanted to continue to attack the goal and feed the bigs. And then the other thing is, you know, he's had trouble scoring over length. And now all of a sudden people are saying, well, should Cal play the last year's player of the year as much? Uh, should Damian Collins, who's come back, start to play? So it's just funny how how things can shake out and fans can kind of get a little crazy. And I'm just glad, uh, you know, watching that game last night that you called, I'm glad I'm not a coach. I don't care how much Rick Barnes makes. <laughs> that sleepless night he had last night wasn't worth a penny of it. Yeah, that's, that's uh, uh, yeah. It's a time of year where coaches, uh, you know, you talk about earning your money. It's, it's, it's a lot of that goes on. And you know, John Calipari has talked about uh, you know playing Oscar less and playing Collins more. That's really interesting, as you said. You know, with the, the returning national player of the year, it seems like it would be a good problem to have, but not so much. Speaking of, of cranky coaches. What about Jim Beheim at Syracuse? He seems to be uh, turning it up as his team treads water. And what do you feel like the end game is for him? He's been there the longest of any coach in college basketball, uh, saying it's his choice. And, uh, you know, he's gotten a little uh, testy with some student reporters and things. And uh, he, he threw some shade on some other teams in the ACC about NIL stuff. And then he walked some of that back. But, uh, how do you see this going for him as you know certainly he's in the uh the final at least couple of years of his career but how do you see this ending well you know it, the stuff that happened recently it, it just seems to point to maybe he will realize it's time to get out i, I know he talked to their ad john wildhack who actually used to work at espn and uh who would know about uh, public relations problems or things that are sound bites for sure. But I think it just, we've talked about this on the show, maybe even last week about how the NIL 
in the portal has made it difficult and maybe driven some coaches out of the game. I'm sure that was a factor in, in maybe probably not coach K cause he'd had a really good year, but I think Roy Williams just said he didn't think he was up to the task anymore. And, and I think he's wrong. I think he could have continued to coach, but it's, it's difficult. And for him to say for, for coach Beheim to say that Wake Forest, Pittsburgh and Miami are buying good players. Well, yeah, duh. They are, but that's legal now. You, you can do that. Uh, Miami uh, took the point guard from K-State, and, and uh, I think it was an $800,000 deal from a startup plus a car. You know, when you can throw that kind of stuff around, that's just what you're going to get. And if he's not up to the task, and I, don't, I forget how old he is, is it 75 or 6? Uh, maybe it's time to step away. And I just feel like, uh, after this, he might stop and assess. And it's been a good career for him, a Hall of Fame career. So maybe it's time to, for him to pack it in as well. Another great game from last weekend was the uh, Purdue-Indiana game. Had a chance to see a whole lot of that one. Uh, Indiana ended up getting the win, and you know it's a big rivalry game and all that stuff. But it's nice to see players be classy and also take up for their teammates. And we saw some of that out of a guy who's – likely the national player of the year, Zach Eady, when that game was over. Yeah, Braden Smith, the freshman point guard, had made a turnover. And, of course, he was asked about it in, in the press conference, and he had a perfectly good answer. But it was funny. I was watching the tape, and I watched it over and over again. But it was Braden Smith, another teammate, and Zach. And Zach's got uh, who knows how long his reach is, but he just reached over grabbed the mic you could hear it and, and his two teammates were looking on like what is he going to say and th- in this big booming voice he just says just to clarify that was one play obviously in a big moment but every place game in a big li- in a big game like this and i just thought that was so classy and i noticed on twitter a couple of days ago dan dockage the <laughs> who has become a big crank was getting hammered by both Indiana, where he went uh, and played and actually shut down Michael Jordan in Michael's last collegiate game in the NCAA tournament, and Purdue fans for saying that players should own up to their mistakes. And it's like, first of all, Braden Smith gave a perfectly good explanation about it. He wasn't ducking his mistakes. And for, for Zach, I mean, I tweeted out that, that video and said everybody deserves a teammate like Zach Eady who's going to stand up and say look in a game like this there's all kinds of things in your game last night uh, there were two freshman mistakes that had they not been made Tennessee walks out of there one kid fouled a three-point shooter Vanderbilt and, and the Vanderbilt kid made all three and then another kid when they were trying to inbound the ball and Vanderbilt was trying to foul, they threw it down under the goal and he had a dunk and turned it down. He dunks it. They're up four. He probably gets fouled. They're up five. So, you know, but those are things that these kids will learn from. And, and uh, so I just thought it was a lot of class from Zach Eady and not a lot of class <laughs> from Mr. Dockage to take this on. Uh, uh, his own Indiana faithful took him to task for it. Chris, this week's guest is a guy who's joined us before. He's always a lot of fun. He's part of the Blue Ribbon staff and writes for the Washington Post. He is Patrick Stevens. What's going on? 
Not much. How are you fellas doing today? We're doing great. Uh, we were admiring your bobblehead collection. Uh, give there's us. A, there's a few. Yes. There's a few of them back there. <laughs> yeah, we see about you know three stacks of shelves on each side. Give us a couple of the highlights. A couple that might be your favorites. A couple of the favorites. Uh, here, here's one from a, a, a team, a minor league team outside of Cleveland, the Lake County Captains. They have a major league night every every year to sort of celebrate the movie, and they, they gave away Joe Boo bobbleheads. The that's awesome. The deity that that Serrano uh, pays tribute to with rum and whatnot. I think that's probably my favorite. It's probably the one that I waited in line for the longest too, uh, to, to to be able to get in. But that that that's certainly one of the highlights. Uh, I've got a Pete Gillen bobblehead over here. That's an eBay acquisition, I'll admit. But, uh, you know, I, I wish that was a talking bobblehead, you know. Like, you know, if it said Duke is Duke. <laughs> leave, know, it leave it to Beaver. Reruns. Leave it to So, so that, that's one that, that's, that stands out as well. So That's awesome. Major League is so filled with great quotes. But the best one is he came to the U.S. to practice religious freedom. And the, the old man just said, what's his religion? They said voodoo. <laughs> there you go. There we are. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, don't mess with Joe Boo's rum or his bobblehead doll. That's what I always that's say. That's right. So shout out to the Lake County captains for that one. There so. you go. Uh, you know, it's funny, uh, Patrick. We were talking about a month ago uh, about the Mountain West mm-hmm. and how you were going to take that over for us next year in the book. And darn if they haven't. They through all the conference shifting, they have managed to hold on to their membership and maintain their status as a multi-bid league. And I, I think most of the bracketologists, of which you are one, would agree that they've got at least three, maybe even four. Uh, what about the Mountain West? I'll tell you that there's a way for that league to hit it inside straight and get fucked. Wow. Now, I, I think that's going to require some help and and. You know, but when you look at what they've done to this point, you've got five teams at the top, and you've got San Diego State and Boise State, who I think are in really good shape right now. Nevada and New Mexico, who are in pretty good shape, and Utah State, who really needed that game uh, against San Diego State on Wednesday. But that group, that group of five teams, is twenty-seven and three against the rest of the Mountain West. Wow. And and the way that you can find a way to get that fivesome all in that. that how it, whatever that is, uh, is is get close to running the table. You know, yeah. New Mexico lost a couple games early in league play outside of that, and Nevada lost to UNLV, who isn't bad. I mean, the thing is, is that most of those teams in the bottom half of the league are either improved or had decent non-conference seasons or both. Like San Jose State's a lot better this year. Uh, Air Force is young, but they they run the Princeton stuff under Joe Scott, and they're they're difficult to deal with. Uh, Colorado State still has good pieces from that tournament team last year. About the only team in that league that's really struggling at this point is Wyoming. And and that was a team that was a tournament team last year. And you got to go to 7,200 feet to go play there. So that's not a walk in the park having to go deal with that. So what they really need is for Utah State to pick up a couple more high-end victories against the rest of the league. They still have a game against Nevada, still have a game against Boise State. Uh, but if that league can continue to have the top five dominate the bottom six, you know, maybe you get a, a, a four or five seed in that league, win the conference tournament, not out of the question. And then, you know, no huge surprises in conference tournaments elsewhere. 
it's possible. I'm not saying it's likely. I think four is very, very possible for, for, for that league right now. Again, when you look at it, like San Diego State, Boise, Nevada. I mean, Nevada, actually, the schedule really turns in their favor down the stretch. They only have one game left against the top six in the league. So if they could get themselves even more on a roll, I think they can create some space between them and the edge of the field, even more so than they already have. I've been really impressed with Nevada. Steve Alford, they were 13 and 18 last year, 6 and 12 in the league. Of course, they had a couple of COVID pauses. But it really kind of tells you how the portal can affect teams. They lost five players, including three, uh, Grant Sherfield, especially at Oklahoma, three to, to power conference teams. But then they got some uh, transfers, including Jared Lucas, who who's, leads them in, in all the shooting categories from, from Oregon State. So it, it really is a testimony to – and I think that's what's caused some of these results and parity is the if people can work the portal, you can fix holes in a hurry. And, and and you're talking about teams here at the top of that league and even in other parts of that league that are really experienced coaches, right? Like Brian Dutcher's been around at San Diego State. Steve Alford has been at Iowa and New Mexico and, and UCLA. You know, Leon Rice spent a ton of time on Mark Hughes' staff at Gonzaga. Ryan Odom, not as old as some of those guys, but obviously his work at UMBC speaks for itself. And, and Richard Patino was in the Big Ten for, what, seven years or so. Yeah. So, you know, these are guys that are largely experienced with some of the higher-end stuff. And so they've be, been able to create some interesting destinations. The other thing to point out is so many of these places, I mean, they are the franchise in town. You know, like New Mexico is the franchise in Albuquerque. Nevada is the franchise in Reno. Boise State, same sort of deal. And San Diego State basketball is a huge deal, which if you went back in time 25 years ago and tried to say that, everybody would have looked at you like you were nuts. But I, I, I did a radio interview a few weeks back on a San Diego radio station. It was their flagship station. And it was it was all granular Mountain West stuff. Like they were really, really into it. And, <laughs> yeah. I've, done, and I've done that at a, on a different station in San Diego. And they are really, really into it there. And so – I think the fact that you have, you know, most of these places, not all of them, but, you know, Wyoming, it's a big deal. Fresno, it's a reasonably big deal. UNLV, I mean, obviously there's other stuff on the strip and all that, but there's history there. Like, those are programs that really mean something in their communities. They're not afterthoughts. And, and I think that, in a way, helps in terms of being able to, to you know, build and rebuild and reload. Uh, you know, I think those are appealing places. And having experienced coaches that have, that have you know have produced a bunch of pros that matters too and so you know you you go into that league it, it is a you know that is a, a conference i believe today in the kempom rankings it's actually nosed ahead of the acc so uh i think that says a little bit about the mountain west and it probably says a little bit about the acc and especially quite frankly louis i saw a stat i couldn't believe san diego state has been ranked in 96 polls since 2010-11 that's more than any other program in the state of California. Wow, uh, which is super. I would have impressive. guessed. I would have guessed UCLA was a little further up the board than that. But yeah, I. But that's uh, that shows you the consistency. I covered a tournament in San Diego State years ago when they weren't that good, uh, and the gym was, you know, not even a fourth full. But boy, that's not the case anymore. No, not 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 at all. 
Patrick Stevens is our guest, uh, writes for Blue Ribbon and also the Washington Post. You can find him on Twitter at Discourse. The, the I is a one in uh, Discourse. I want to ask you about, you really, the, go back to the, the top of the uh, bracket predictions. And, you know, we're deep enough in the season where the, some of the number one seeds are going to be the number one seeds. But how much room is there for movement and flexibility among maybe those three and four spots? Yeah, I think there's still a fair bit with a month to go. I mean, you're still talking about teams having seven regular season games left, something like that, plus conference tournaments. So that's, you know, that's not quite – that's about a quarter of the season, quarter of the regular season to go. Uh, so there's still some wiggle room there. I mean, I, I think we're getting to the point where we can start saying that there are a handful of teams that we know are going to be in the tournament no matter what. Like, they could lose out and, and they're still comfortably in the field. Uh, but in terms of the top lines, I mean, I think we have a decent idea, you know, who some of those teams are going to be. But I think there's still some wiggle room if somebody gets hot in a, in a variety of leagues. I mean, I think there's room for somebody to get on a bit of a streak in the Big in the Big Ten and be able to make a push. I mean, right now, I think there's a logjam of those Big Twelve teams, uh, and rightfully so, uh, in the in that one, two, three, four, five range. Right now, I think you would have Kansas, you'd have Iowa State, you'd have Texas. You'd have Kansas State, you'd have Baylor, and you'd probably even still have TCU on that five line at this point. Uh, so I think there's probably some room as those teams continue to beat themselves up, beat up beat each other up, I should say, uh, and to see maybe an extra Big Ten team emerge, maybe see somebody get hot in the ACC uh, and make a push. Uh, but but realistically, you know, I, I think you've probably got a decent idea of who teams are going to be for the most part within three or four lines of each other by this point. Patrick, I, I watched that uh, Duke and Carolina game back last Saturday night, and you know it was an exciting finish, and it's kind of weird to see that series without Coach K or Roy Williams or even Dean Smith. It was the first time since 1961 you hadn't had one of those guys uh, on one bench or another. It was a, you know an exciting game, and Duke ends up winning. But then the next time out, Duke gets you know, blown out, and North Carolina lost at Wake Forest. That might be a highly rated game and a lot of eyeballs and you know a close game and all that, but in reality, those two teams are are a long way from being national contenders. It looks like this year. Yeah, and for different reasons, you know, I I, I don't want to bury Duke too much on that loss to Miami two nights later, having to go on the road. You reload the musket two nights after that, right? After after a big big emotional win like after they had. a big emotional yeah. game and not exactly the way you typically see a Duke Carolina game go, right? You think about Duke Carolina and you're thinking, gosh, this is going to be a track meet. It's going to be 85, mm-hmm. 81. It's going to be the, and that was 63, 57, which is exactly the kind of game this Duke team has to win. Uh, one thing that's really interesting when, you know, and I, and I did Duke the Duke preview for blue ribbon this year for the last couple of years, actually. And, you know, they were so excited about Derek Whitehead and so excited about Derek lively and really yeah. thought Jeremy Roach was going to take a huge step forward this year, and, and he has improved. But those guys, none of the – there has not been a single game all season where all three of those guys played 20 minutes in the same game. And uh-huh. so, you know, I don't think that Duke has shown us what its best version is. I don't know if Duke knows what its best version of itself is, and I don't know if we're going to see it. I, I think that with them, you, you have to acknowledge that given the, the, over, the roster overhaul that they do every year – that this was kind of a worst case scenario where they just there's just no continuity there. Carolina is a different animal because we all expected them to be good, right? Like, yeah, they lost Brady Manick and he was a huge piece of what they did. 
but they bring back Caleb Love. They bring back Armando Baycott. They bring back Leaky Black. They bring back R.J. Davis. They've got some bench guys that you're thinking, oh, Puff Johnson can take a step forward, and he's obviously had his injury issues. But they haven't been the same team. And, you know, for people that thought, oh, let's just plug Pete Nance into the Brady Manick spot, they're going to be fine. Well, he's been okay, and he was he was okay at Northwestern too. But they, they have not been right. And, and that's a team that, unlike Duke, where you've seen some of those games, like the game last week against Georgia Tech, who's, who's not good. But uh, when you look at them and go down, they win by 40 or whatever it was. Like, that's kind of what you expect out of them. And there haven't been those games for Carolina where you sit there and go, yeah, they, they just did exactly what they were supposed to do here. I mean, uh, and it's not just because they've lost three in a row. I mean, you kind of look back and how many <clears throat> games you really walk away from thinking – yeah, that was exactly what I kind of expected out of Carolina. I think maybe the best example of it was probably back on November 11th when they hung 102 on Charleston. Mm -hmm. But besides that, I mean, eight-point win at home over BC. That They handled NC State at home. They handled Notre Dame at home. They haven't done a whole lot of notable things away from Chapel Hill. Uh, you know, Their best win on the team sheet is a neutral site victory over Ohio State, which is a team that, frankly, has just been completely lost for the last month. And so I think there's a lot more criticism that should be pointed at Carolina. And I think there's criticism that should be pointed at all of us that thinking that that was just going to automatically translate <laughs> from one year to another, too. Hey, you're right about that. You follow it as well as anybody this side of, of Joey Brackett's. I, I know this because he sent me a, a text the other night that had a, 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 a picture of, of a season pass to Delaware State, and he, and the, he said – the Lynx one will go to see Chicago State in the flesh. So Chicago State is like, I don't know what they're ranked in in the net, or, but they're traditionally near the bottom. And, and uh, But I, I thought it was funny that you wanted to go see them because you, you rode them for Blue Ribbon too, showing your versatility. But uh, getting to my question, have you, have you hit on an upset special team in the NCAAs yet? Is there somebody that maybe we should start keeping our eyes on who might make a little noise uh, in the tournament? I got four teams for you. All one Perfect. bid league, all mm -hmm. one bid league teams. And one's a very familiar name, Oral Roberts. Max yep. Asmus is still around. They're rolling yep. through the summit league. You know, I, I think that him in a one game scenario, we already saw what could happen with that. So I think that if they're sitting there as like an 11 or a 12 seed, that that's going to be, if they get the right matchup, it's going to yeah. be kind of scary. I think whoever comes out of the colonial, assuming it's one of those top three teams, if it's Charleston, if it's Hofstra, if it's Towson for different reasons, Charleston's super deep. They've had a couple stumbles of late, but they have been playing really well and ripped off 20 in a row. Towson lost its point guard for the season. Didn't finally decide it was for the season until recently but lost him early, and they brought back three other guys that were all-conference caliber guys. They were All, all three of the other guys were preseason all-conference guys. And so if all three of those guys play well, Nick Timberlake, Charles Thompson, Cam Holden's kind of a point-forward type, had a triple-double a few weeks back against William & Mary. If all three of those guys play well, they could be a factor. And then Hofstra has a kid named Aaron Estrada, uh, who I believe was the – I believe that was the St. Peter's, Oregon, Hofstra uh, – uh, trek for him uh, but but he is an absolute fill it up guy and again similar to what we're talking about with Asmus that if he gets himself going 
look out. And, you know, you got some interesting coaches there too. Pat Kelsey, who's been in the tournament a bunch with Winthrop. Pat Scary, who's done a fabulous job here in the Baltimore area building Towson up after taking over really arguably the worst co- team in the country when he took over back in 2011. And then uh, Speedy Claxton, the former Hoster star in charge of that. Two other names I'll give you. Eastern Washington, uh, which has the nation's longest winning streak at 14 in a row, leads the big sky. Uh, one thing that you would not expect out of Eastern Washington, based on Ken Palm, they're the ninth tallest team in the country. They start 6'6", 6'6", 6'6", 6'7", and 6'10". And so they are a team that plays positionless basketball, and they could create all sorts of matchup headaches, especially if they can worm their way up to the 14 line or something like that. And then Youngstown State, a team that's never been in the tournament, uh, turned their program over to a guy named Jared Calhoun a few years ago who'd taken Division II Fairmont State out of West Virginia to the D2 final. And he has gradually built them up. They're a game up in the Horizon League. They have a lot of pieces back from a team that had taken a big step forward last year. And I think that might be the sort of team that could cause problems really well coached on the 15 line. That, that could be your real upset special potentially. That was Patrick Stevens, uh, writes for Blue Ribbon and also for the Washington Post. Really interesting stuff. And you can find him on Twitter at Discourse, D-1-S-C-O-U-R-S-E. Chris, he was talking about going to eastern Washington. I've actually been to eastern Washington. Huh. Uh, it's just outside Spokane in Cheney, Washington. And I actually, Belmont played there uh, in the 2019-2020 season. And I actually made a day trip to do this game. So, I'd done, I'd done a game. I think we were playing on like a Tuesday night. I'd done a game on Monday, and I, and I couldn't go with the team. And so I flew. I got up early. I flew from Nashville to San Francisco to Spokane. Uh, I caught an Uber over to Cheney and went over there, hung out for a little while, did some prep, did the game. It didn't go very well for Belmont. I don't know, Eastern Washington ended up winning. I also walked over next door and checked out the red football field uh, that Eastern Washington plays on. And, and it's the home of, of Michael Roos, who was a terrific offensive lineman for yeah. the uh, Tennessee Titans, and the field's actually named after him. Uh, so we did all that. We did the game. And then we went and we had a, a post-game uh, pizza meal at a place that was kind of a bowling alley slash uh, pizza restaurant. <laughs> and then we went from there to the airport in Spokane and went Spokane to Chicago, back to Nashville on a red eye, and uh, got back in time oh for, for Thanksgiving. So, uh, yes, my, my one trip to Spokane slash Cheney, uh, Eastern Washington, was a, a day trip. And uh, my, one re- <laughs> my one regret about that whole trip was that I didn't have more time because two of the states I've never been to are, yeah. are Idaho and Montana. And from Spokane, you can get both of those states really easy, probably within about an hour if you have a car. But I was just yeah. not there long enough, and I always regretted. It's like, you know what? If I had had maybe even like five more hours in a rental car, I could have picked up those two states and, and crossed them off the list. But that that was my day trip to uh, to Eastern Washington. Well, you got to talk Coach Stackhouse into playing uh, Gonzaga, and and you can knock out those two states. <laughs> yeah, man. maybe we can make that happen sometime. Or you know, that's a tournament site every now and then, so maybe we could uh, make it out there uh, one of these years. Chris, as we finish up, we look forward to the return of the Mandalorian. It'll be back on March 1st, so a few weeks out. Uh, Din Djarin and Grogu ride again in their uh, new vehicle, so uh, looking forward to seeing those two. Yeah, I am too. It's a different sort of March Madness for us. Uh, <laughs> you know, the fastest-growing segment on our podcast is our spoiler-filled reviews of, of Star Wars shows, so I'm certain we'll have much to say. I'm 
I wonder if Grogu fills out a bracket. That's what I want. Yeah, you got to think he probably does. You know, he's holding his little you know cup of coffee or whatever he's having there, and uh, and he's got powers. He you does. Know? He you can know, look in. He can maybe look into the future. I'm not sure. But <laughs> I don't know. You know, and I've also been binge watching Better Call Saul, and then this kind of segues from uh, Mandalorian. The the connection there is uh, Giancarlo Esposito, who I think is a, a terrific actor. He's great at playing villains. He's got that down. Sort of the low key chicken restaurant slash you know drug lord uh, Gus Fring on, on Better Call Saul, and of course uh, Breaking Bad, and then he's Moff Gideon on The Mandalorian. He's really really good in those roles. Uh, Chris, I, I know you've been tracking the NFL throughout the season, and it will give us a very educated Super <laughs> yeah. Bowl pick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Super Bowl's coming up on Sunday. Uh, Eagles and Chiefs, it actually should be a really good game. Uh, but I, it always kind of leads me to my annual, hey, let me think about some college basketball players that played in the NFL. Uh, the one that comes to mind in terms of the Super Bowl is Donovan McNabb, who was on a Final Four team with Syracuse in 1996 and also played for the Eagles against the Patriots uh, a few years back in the Super Bowl in Jacksonville. Uh, players that I've seen and actually call games, Mo Ali Cox, he played for VCU. And, and back then you yep, looked at that dude and him. said, that I've guy can him. probably play in the NFL. And he's had a nice career at the I Indianapolis Colts. Yeah. In yeah. He played at Belmont. And, you were, you called that game. Uh huh. And then also, uh, Julius Thomas, who played for Portland State, uh, Belmont played against them in a, in a tournament out in Seattle one year. And, uh, he ended up being a really good receiver for a lot of years for the Denver Broncos. So th- those are the ones that are top of mind for me. I know there are a few more examples of guys who've done both but uh certainly donovan mcnab will be the one when you talk about high profile guys who played uh, college hoops and also played in the nfl and nfl scouting has gotten so sophisticated that they can just look at athleticism in other sports and see how it applies to uh the pro game of football and you know there's been some hits and a few misses but a lot of interesting stories you could say the same for our show. Some hits, some misses, uh, some interesting stories. The Blue Ribbon no College Basketball Podcast. Chris, always a lot of fun. Uh, thanks a lot, and we'll do it next time, man. Sounds good, man. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast.